Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. The body of Marianne Nichols was discovered in Bucks Row at around 3.40 on the morning of Friday, August 31st, 1888 by a carman named Charles Cross, real name Charles Lechmere, who was shortly joined by another man also on his way to work named Robert Paul. Together they alerted a police officer, Jonas Meisen, while nearly simultaneously her body was discovered again this time by P.C. John Neal, Bucks Row being a part of his walking beat. Long considered the least examined of the canonical five murders attributed to Jack the Ripper, the murder of Polly Nichols has gained renewed interest over the past few years, in large part due to the emergence of Charles Cross slash Charles Lechmere as a Jack the Ripper suspect. Steve Blommer has written and published a detailed examination of the murder of Marianne Nichols entitled Inside Buck's Row, Anatomy of a Murder Scene, and I welcome him to the show today. Thanks for coming on, Steve. Hi, thank you for having me on. What led to your interest in the Whitechapel murders and ultimately your decision to produce this book about Buck's Row? What you say is the first of what will be a series of books examining each murder. My first interest goes back to when I was about seven or eight. My grandfather, who was born just after uh, the murders in 1895, used to tell me stories about the whole, the old East End and Jack the Ripper and Peter the Painter. Um, I then was lucky enough to be allowed as a young 13-year-old to watch the Barlow and Watt TV program, um, dabbled with the Ripper on and off over the years. Then in 87, 88, um, when Fido's book came out and when Paul Begg's book came out, um, got really interested again, then over the years drifted in and out. Um, my other main interest is Egyptology and I sort of played with the two over the years. I took early retirement from work in 2015 and started devoting myself to um, looking at the Ripper murders again and on Casebook, JTR forums. Soon got involved with various characters on there, one of whom, um, Krista Holmgren, who uh, supports and pushes the Lechmere could have been the, the killer theory. We had a discussion one day uh, uh, regarding the, the actual order of Marianne Nichols' wounds. And I've got background in medical research and I decided to go away and do some investigation of this. It was meant to be a short article. Um, somehow it's turned into a 540 page book. We should point out that the book is um, electronic only and web interactive with links to maps and message board discussions and press reports, which is unique for a Ripper book for those accustomed to reading mainly paper published books. What led to your decision to go that route? Well, I started off, as I say, just writing an article and then I started reading the state witness statements and decided that they all need to be put together in one place because they were sort of scattered all over the place. If you want to read what one person said, you had to read about 15 different press reports. It just took time and trying to find the right bits. So I started putting them together and it seemed to make sense to have internal links to connect them. Now, I've, I've done some programming in the past and around the same sort of time as I was getting into it, um, we had the latest version of Cornwall's um, Sickert book, which had interactive maps. And I suddenly thought, what a great idea. We can do this interactively. 
It also means that you can update much more easily than you can a print edition. So a site new crops up, crops up. You, you can just go in there and make a change to it and send out a new version. Um, it also means you can link everything in really well. I mean, one of the bits I've done in the book is a timeline which actually puts everything into perspective, I think. And that can link to all the, that links to all the various witness statements to give you a rough idea of what's going on, where and when. And it is nice. Uh, I enjoyed the feature of, especially when it came to the press reports where you would, um, cite a certain press report in the text of the book and then, uh, click the, um, footnote to take you to the exact press reports. It makes it much more convenient, um, to, have having them all um all the press reports specifically about the bucks row murder in isolation so it is a really helpful feature now the murder of polly nichols like i said earlier was one of the crimes that i wouldn't say has been overlooked but hasn't necessarily received as much attention as the kelly murder or the double event um, 10 or 15 years ago, even Annie Chapman's murder was probably a topic of greater focus. Criminally speaking with serial killers, what's believed to be their first murder is typically the one that garners the most focus, as it's the one where they're most likely to make a mistake by leaving a clue or something like that. I guess proponents of the Lechmere as Ripper theory believed he did just that. Made a mistake at the first murder, leaving a clue as to his identity. Um, but up until then, why do you think that the murder of Polly Nichols was comparatively unexamined within Ripperology? I believe it's unexamined because of the complete lack of any official records. We're relying purely on press reports for the whole thing. Um, for the inquest, for medical reports, for everything. There's no inquest papers. There is nothing at all. This has led to mass degree of speculation and people disagreeing about various bits and pieces. I mean, we don't even, for the Nichols one, know what the police beats were specifically. We've got three or four various options which the police beats could have been, and those are actually quite important. We have the same with the wounds, the wounds that are... As they're written up in the sparse documentation we have, are open to interpretation. Um, it's only recently that there seems to be a consensus which has gone for far more extensive wounds to Marianne than had previously been fought. Right, and and Tom Westcott uh, writes about that in his books. As well. Yes, Tom was one of those who first brought it up. Um, even when we look at the documentary, the missing evidence, you've got the. A prominent forensic expert in that, Professor Payne James, who shows diagrams of the wounds, which are now completely different to what Christa Holmgren himself even suggests may be possible. All right. Um, we'll get to the missing evidence here in a little bit. Now, now as I was talking about um, other um, canonical five murders being more heavily examined, it's like, What's made the murder of Catherine Eddowes in Mitre Square such a draw for researchers over the years is the sheer luck that the murderer would have had to have to escape undetected from the scene of the crime, giving the timing of those police beats and eyewitness reports. And then add to that the gall he had to discard a piece of her bloody apron on Goulston Street 
and possibly even stopping to chalk a message in an entryway. But the Nichols murder is nearly as compelling. While Bucks Row wasn't as virtually surrounded by policemen walking their respective beats as the documentary The Missing Evidence portrays, it did have police in a wider surrounding area. And it did take place on a thoroughfare um, as opposed to like in a backyard, like in the Chapman murder and included a few people walking through the area on their way to work. And there was also a populated slaughterhouse somewhat nearby in Winthrop street. And then there were residents inside of their homes in Buck Row itself. Yet the killer escaped. So kind of explain to set the scene for us as far as, um, and the scene of the crime. And well, Buck, Bucks Row is a long road, um, runs parallel to the Whitechapel Road and north of it. Um, it's about 24 foot wide at its widest point uh, at, the, at the eastern end. It opens up wider when you go past the board school, but until then it's quite a, quite a narrow street. It's just before the board school, just before the railway line which runs north-south, that Mary Ann was killed outside Brown's Yard. The road itself runs, which I say, the road runs between uh, Baker's Row in the west to Brady Street in the east. Bucks Row was covered by J Division. Yes. Um, as opposed to H Division. Although it was practically on, on the very edge um, of H Division's territory. Is that right? Yes. Yes, and this is one of the problems. For H Division, we have the beat books still left, as Newell Bell has uh, published in his very good book. Unfortunately, there's nothing for J Division. The records for J Division are virtually non-existent. We don't know what the beats were. We... There's a report published in the Echo on the 20th of uh, September, which gives a rough idea what the beats could be. And it fits very well for the beat of PC Newell and his description of it taking 30 minutes. But we don't know it's accurate. We don't know how accurate it is at all. One of the problems is the police themselves in J Division didn't cover themselves of any glory at all. They didn't cover the murder itself very well. They allowed the body to be removed before an inspector arrived. Uh, the area wasn't searched adequately or checked properly. Uh, they weren't good at the mortuary. The whole thing was a mess. That's why there's so little evidence there, because they just didn't cope with it well. This was a new murder thing to them. They, they weren't used to this sort of degree of violence. They were out of their depth, quite honestly, Jonathan. Right. And you were saying of, of the, um, the lack of definite information uh, about <clears throat> the police beats. Um, and something that I was, when I was reading Neil's book, uh, Capturing Jack the Ripper, Yesterday, Sergeant Kirby, who arrives back on the scene um, in Bucks Row um, after mm -hmm. the discovery of the murder, um, says that he had passed through Bucks Row, making his rounds as a section sergeant about 30 minutes before PC Neal discovers the body. But I, I was unsure of this, if we have uh, an accurate, um, you, you go to great lengths in, in discussing the possible beat of PC Neal. Yeah. But I, I only, uh, it made me wonder 
um, because it seems like if he discovered, uh, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but if he discovered, if Kirby um, walked down a quiet Buck's Row 30 minutes before Neil discovered the body, and I believe Neil had last walked through that area 25 minutes before or something. 25 um, to 30 minutes before. It means then they were their beats. Then, then Kirk, Sergeant Kirby's um, section sergeant rounds seemed to have been nearly overlapping um, Neil's beat. Um, unless, but but I but I don't know if we know what the section sergeant's beat was and how. No that idea at all. We have no record to Neil's. Uh, whether they overlapped or passed each other, you know. So. Um, it's this, like like you had said, the inquest reports from the Nichols murder only survive in the form of press coverage, which varies in all these details, including those of the police beats, and, and the official documents are either missing or dis- destroyed. Um, it means researchers must kind of piece together what they believe to be the most likely scenario using all this incomplete and at times contradictory and inaccurate information, you know, must be kind of a tough job. It's a very tough job, particularly on the beats where we have the Times and the Daily News on the third saying it's a 12 minute beat. No idea where that comes from. Um, PC Neal himself says it takes him 30 minutes basically to, to go round his beat and he says he goes as far to the west as Baker's Row and he goes as far to the east as Brady Street. Um, we just got no idea exactly what bits he took. I mean the echo on the 20th actually gives a very large section to the north of Buck's Row as being part of his beat. Now some researchers just disregard that full stop uh, and just say it's it's Illogical. I don't think it is because if you look at the timings, it actually works very well. It's a few minutes out from 30 minutes. But Neil doesn't say it's exactly 30 minutes. He says approximately every 30 minutes. The one problem I have with the echo report is PC fame because the beat it gives for him, if he covers every section on every beat, every route, every route is over an hour. And it's just not practical. So obviously he... Either it's wrong or he has to make shortcuts and only one side of a street at some sometimes. It's very difficult trying to come to a proper conclusion about what to accept and what not to accept. Mm-hmm. It's the suspect candidacy of Charles Cross that's given rise to a debate on what's become popularly known as the Meisen scam. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, term, I believe, was, that was coined by Chrysler Holmgren in an article published in Herbologist Magazine some seven years ago. Jonas Meisen being the PC first alerted to the presence of Polly Nichols' body by Cross and Paul. So let's unpack what the Meisen scam is for our listeners. Okay, the classic scam as proposed by the Lechmere people is that Cross and Paul walking along Buck's Row, come out in Baker's Row and see Misen on the corner of Old Montague Street and Hanbury Street. Um, some reports say just coming out of Old Montague, some say coming out of Hanbury. It's very, again, very hard to tell. What happens next is that the two uh, carbon approach 
Myerson, who's actually in the process of knocking up. Knocking up is knocking on people's windows to wake them up at a set time. The police did this and they sometimes got paid extra for it. They approach Myerson and they say, you're needed down in Bucks Row. There's a woman lying there, either dead or dead drunk, or words to that effect. The exact wordage is debatable. He then says, okay, thank you. They don't, the two carmen don't really appreciate his, his attitude and they wander off to work. He then wanders on down and ends up in Bucks Row. The scam which is proposed is that he says that he's, they said to him, you're wanted by another policeman in Bucks Row. And this meant that he wouldn't stop them. He wouldn't take any details off them and just let them pass. Actually, there's no reason for him to take any details according to the police code. They didn't tell him the woman was dead. They only said she was appearing to be unwell, shall we say. There's no mention of this, his account of being told that he's wanted until the Monday morning at the inquest when he appears. And also, according to the police code, a uh, Bobby could only leave his beat either by a direct order from a superior officer or in the, the uh, case of a known emergency. Isn't that right? Yes, it is. And I believe that he interpreted this as not being an emergency. I think he, I don't think he did anything wrong personally. I think he, I think he personally just interpreted it as, as a woman lying there, she's unconscious, she's either drunk or she's possibly dead. Uh, but it's not in my division, it's not on my beat, and there's another police officer who's going to be down there anyway. I think it's quite probable that um, because the beats intersected, that they knew each other's beats, they knew roughly when they passed each other. It's even possible that, um, it's certainly possible that Fane and Neil saw each other quite, fairly regularly uh, as their beats intersected. It's also possible that Meisen and Neil saw themselves occasionally and were aware that each other were down there. I think basically Meisen just didn't take any notice of what he was told. I think and he so, thought it's not an emergency. So what did Meisen proceed to do? He continued well, knocking up, right? Well, apparently he continued knocking up. All we know for sure is he himself admits he, he, he finished off the knock-up he was on. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know if he did more than the knock-up he, he was on. Uh, and I go into great depth looking at the timings involved. Now, the timings are something I play around with a lot, and they can never be precise. Uh, they can just be a guideline, and the timings don't look right for him proceeding down to Bucks Row with any urgency. Right. Um, so you provide maps in your book and everything, but, um, but if our listeners can kind of envision this, um, when uh, Cross and Paul first encountered Meisen, he was at the corner of Hanbury Street. Yeah. And for Meisen to then continue um, doing what he was doing and possibly ignoring Cross and Paul, um, yeah. he, he's still going towards Buck's Row. Yes, that's his beat. We're um, assuming he's doing a, a, a clockwise beat. So right. he's, he, he'd be going south on the western side of Baker's Row. And at some um, point, he turns down Buck's Row. Now, whether that's because he was told he's, he was investigating per what Cross and Paul had said to him, or he was signaled by Neil. Well, um, my take is, I mean, originally, I just assumed the whole thing was a great big misunderstanding. And then when I was early on in my work, when I was looking at the witness statements of PC Neil, something struck me. It's about where he said Meisen was when he first saw him. He doesn't see him 
He says, I see him passing in or passing along Baker's Row. Now, I thought, first of all, you can't see Baker's Row from the murder site. So I thought, let's just check this out. So use some Mac, got some people to do some some 3D modeling for, for me. And if you move slightly across, you can see the bottom nine foot of the junction. You also, I also think that if he doesn't say that he sees Meisen coming down Buck's Row, White's Row, he says he sees him going down, going along Baker's Row. To me, that suggests he's heading south. I think what happens is he looks along. As he gets there, he thinks, oh, I better just have a look and see if I can see anything. His light possibly shows up. It's also interesting that there may also have been, been a street light in roughly the same position where he would have been looking east along Bucks Row. Um, I think at this stage, it's just coincidence that Neil, looking in that direction, sees him there and signals to him and he comes along. But we haven't Neil actually saying that I signal to both of them. It's mainly known that he signals to Fane, but it's also included in reports on the 3rd in the Times and the Daily News that he signalled to both police officers at both ends of the street. Yet there's no recognition of that or acknowledgement of that by Meisen himself. Meisen just says, oh, I arrived there and I see him shining his light on the street. Right. And... And just to reiterate the importance of the Meisen scam to proponents of the Charles Lechmere suspect theory, Meisen is the one who claims that um, Cross and Paul had said that a policeman wants you in Buck's room. Yes. Whereas Cross and Paul in the inquest, according to the press reports, both deny that they had seen a policeman um, in Buckshrow, obviously, because there wasn't one there. And so the Lechmere suspect theory has it that Cross invented this policeman with the forethought that if Meisen was told that a policeman needed him, then Meisen would assume the policeman had already um, got uh, Charles Cross's name and address and information, maybe briefly questioned him and, and cleared him of suspicion and let, let him go on his way. So that's a lot of, if that's possible, um, in my opinion. I mean, it, it, for Charles Cross, in the four three and a half to four minutes it took for Cross and Paul to leave the body and Bucks Row and to encounter Meisen mm. down the road. It's a lot to think about, isn't it? <laughs> it's a it's a lot to think about and it's a lot to plan about. And 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 then he would have been the the, the luckiest serial killer um, on the planet. Every everything he anticipated worked out exactly his way, and he was uh, left to continue on to work. Um, yes. Now there's a misinterpret there's a misunderstanding I think and I don't know where this comes from but that this whole idea that Charles Cross gave the wrong name mm. um actually doesn't uh, uh, I think that uh, a lot of people believe that that he was asked his name by Misen yes they do and I see and said and said his name was Charles Cross as opposed to giving his real name a Charles Lechmere. But that's mm. not, that, that never occurred. 
we first heard hear the name Charles Cross at the inquest. Meisen never asked for his name, which no. is part of the Meisen scam. You know? Yes. So, I mean, so the one thing they like, assume, one thing the proponents of the Lechmere and the Meisen scam assume is that Meisen would have had reason to ask them for details and to have possibly taken them back to uh, Brown's yard. Um, all they've told him is there's a woman lying there drunk. It's a woman unconscious. That's not an emergency. Um, they're not saying a crime's been committed at all. Even if she's dead, she may have died from drinking. They're not saying she's been attacked or anything. It's not an emergency. He's got no reason to take their details, no reason to take them back to, to, to site, no reason to search them for a, a weapon, which some of them suggest is the reason for the scam. It just makes no sense to me. It's almost like you're inventing reasons for a theory. And so, um, as you say in your book, you know, it's with the Meisen scam, it's either that, and, and I don't believe, I don't believe it's a black and white situation to where no. it's, where it's either, uh, at the inquest, Cross and Paul lying that they didn't say that he was wanted by a policeman mm-hmm. or Meisen lying and saying that that was said to him. I don't think that it, it's necessarily, I think there's a gray area in there in which Meisen could have interpreted the, we don't know the exact quote that was used by no, Cross when he spoke to Meisen. But if Cross had said to Meisen, you're wanted down in Buck's Row, then Meisen could have interpreted that to mean that he was wanted by a policeman. When what Cross really meant was that you're wanted by Polly Nichols, that you're, you're, yeah. that Polly Nichols needs you in Buck's Row. Yes. So there could have been a, a simple misunderstanding of, of what was, what the intention of the comment was. And, and given that Meisen knows that that's Neil's beat, that, that Neil would be there. If they were familiar enough with each other's beat to know the time, rough timing of it. And then when Meisen does go down Buck's Row, he sees Neil, the policeman. So it's kind of understandable how some of this confusion can, can come about. And so I kind of lean towards it being just a, a simple misunderstanding on the part of Meisen. Um, but you take the, uh, opinion that maybe Meisen was covering his ass at the inquest because he, were it not for Neil signaling him with his lantern, he might have just ignored the, the whole going down the yes. stroke entirely. Yes. And not have gone to the aid of Polly. No, I agree. That's where I come from. That's that's what I suggest, basically. Now, in the book, I make comments like comments that were made. There's two press reports, the Times on the 12th, um, Times on the 3rd of of September and the Daily News on the 3rd. Many people interpret these, see these as like a press release by by the police or straightforward interviews. I see it as a mixture of, I read through it time and time again, I see it as a mixture of some press release, some interview, some journalistic writing. One of the points in there is that 
there's a point in there where Neil actually says that, um, which possibly Neil says, again, it's hard to tell because of the way it's written. It's hard to tell exactly who's saying what. But it's suggested that the two, Neil signals to the two policemen at either end and that neither of them, um, that, that neither of them said they saw anyone who attracted their attention. Now, this is on the sun. This is, this is published on the Monday. Obviously, for information probably on the Sunday, possibly before the Lloyd story appears. When I look at that, I just ask myself, well, how can Meisen say that no one attracted his attention? You've got two men who he is saying 24 hours later, come along and say to him, you're wanted by a police officer. If that's not attracting attention, I don't know what is. And that, but what I say is that that's possibly, that can possibly be seen as him denying that he spoke to them initially. It's possible. Um, it could be. Um, another point I say he's reported to have said, because we can't quite be sure who said what, or where this has come from. Is it a, a quote directly from him, or is it, a, is it a quote from Neil, or that information he's given to Neil? We don't know, again, because the reports just aren't specific enough. Right, and, and you and I kind of have a difference of opinion on that one. Yeah. Um, Whereas Neil, as far as I know, is from what the quote, the source of the quote, saying um, that they didn't, they didn't uh, see anyone that aroused. Uh, that, mm. um, I forget what the exact the exact phrase was, but the way the way that you you describe it in your book um, as one of your bullet points is that. Meisen initially denied that he saw anyone leaving the scene. And this is based on the statement, most possibly yes. by Neil, that neither Meisen nor Thane saw anyone that aroused their suspicion, um, yeah. leaving the spot. To um, be fair, though, that bullet point is at the end of a section where I put forward a brand new hypothesis rather than in a bit beforehand where I say could and maybe. It's only when putting forward the hypothesis and then coming to a definite conclusion that I right. believe that he is denying that he's met them. Right. Um, and and, it's, and it, this goes back to just mainly that disagreements can arise ba with amongst ripperologists based yes. on the lack of um, accurate um, inquest reports and, yes. and met um, police reports on this murder. We have very little information to go off of, and it's a lot of it's an, uh, down to interpretation. Yeah. So no, when I, I don't expect, I, I don't interpret expect to my, if Meisen, I mean, if Meisen said that he um, didn't see anyone that aroused his suspicion, and he didn't see anyone leaving the scene of the crime, well, both of those things are true. Um, even if you you take into account his meeting with Cross and Paul, because he didn't see them leave the scene. He didn't see them leave the spot, and they didn't arouse his suspicion because he let them go off on their way. So, so um, and, and, and if there's a Met report of, of the many that ha are now missing and destroyed, uh, that Take into account Meisen's meeting with Cross and Paul. Uh, we don't know what that is, you know. Well, um, I'm, just getting, I'm just getting the actual wording here. These officers had seen no man leaving the spot to attract attention. 
Right. No man leaving the spot to spot. attract attention. Not saying suspicion, attract attention. Well, they've actually attracted his attention. They've actually gone and spoken to him and said there's a woman lying there. He doesn't even mention them. Meisen does not appear to mention them at all. Now, this could just be a journalist writing. Right. But we've only got a certain amount of information, and sometimes you have to put your courage of, of your convictions forward and say, well, this is what I believe it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, I back that up with that on the police report on the 19th. This is the Abilene Swanson report on the 19th. The actual words they use there is that um, they say that um, they approached uh, Meisen and told him what they had seen. That's the word in the official report. Right. They told him what they had seen in Buck's Row. Knowing about um, him being summoned down there, this is the official police report. The police are obviously not giving any credence to Meisen's uh, comments at all. That he was told that a policeman yes, was summoning him down there. Right. What it says is the word they use are that they told him uh, what was – being dark, they didn't notice any blood, and they passed on with the attention – the intention of informing the first constable they met on arriving at the corner of Hanbury Street and Old Montague Street, they met PC 55 H. Meisen and acquainted him with what they had seen. And on the constable proceeding towards the spot, he found PC 97 J. Neal. Right. And this is some two and a half weeks after the murder. Yes. This is the official, um, this is the first, this is the first official um, report that's actually first over, overarching report that's made, and it's signed by Abilene and Swanson. Right. So it's, it's, at some point in between there is what I'm kind of saying. They, th- I agree with you that, they, that they, they must have sorted out the whole issue of what Meisen had said at the inquest about being a think, yes. believing that he was being summoned by a policeman. Yes. Um, because the official report as you had just read by Aberline, um, takes uh, d- dismisses his his interpretation of it and goes with what Cross and Paul had said. So yes. in between there, there must there must have been a sorting out of the facts and how they did that, we just don't know. Well, what we do know is that Paul was taken in for questioning, lengthy questioning, we're not quite sure of the date of it. He then appears in courts on the 17th appears at the inquest on the 17th. Um, what's interesting is that he's not asked about the Meisen scam at all. He's not asked about what happened there. It's completely glossed over. Well, at least it's not in the newspaper reports. He's not asked, he's asked, did you go up and see a policeman? Yes, it's left there. There's no question of, did you say to the policeman, uh, he's needed him, another policeman wants him in Bucks Row. Did you hear the other man say this? It's just not asked. Right. And there's a lot of that that goes on at the inquest. Yes. Um, and, and in Meisen's, what some would interpret it as a dereliction of duty, those kinds of issues are never gone into it at the inquest either. No. Meisen is kind of uh, um, treated with kid gloves. Yes. Now, I don't think he's done anything wrong. I think um, he's followed the police code to the letter. He's done exactly what he's supposed to do. But I think what happens, first of all, on the Saturday... On the third, um, that's the first. So Saturday the first, he when Neil appears in court, he says, "I see Meisen walking down Baker's Row." 
On the Sunday, we get this report in Lloyd's, which is highly colourful, contentious, has to be treated a great deal of caution, which says that Myzen basically wasn't listening to what we said and just carried on locking up. I think Myzen then suddenly realises that if he's asked a question like, when did you first see PC Neil? Where were you going when PC Neil signalled to you? It might look like it might look terrible for him. I don't think he'd done anything wrong. I think he's just trying to cover his backside. So I think he goes into court. This is what I suggest in the book anyway, that he goes to the inquest and purges himself, but not of a big perjury, if you know what I mean. It's a white lie. It's one that can never be disproved because he can just say, I misunderstood, which is what, which is where you're coming from, which is where I originally came from. Just misunderstood. I'm sorry. I thought they said I interpret it as being another policeman. And I think the police basically just think, let's just leave it like that. I think that's why they don't ask the questions. That's why questions aren't asked at the inquest on the 17th of Paul, because it's been walked under the bridge. It doesn't affect the crime and they don't want to bring it to the surface for the press. Right, because in your opinion, the press um, and the public would would have a a field field day. Yes. Um, and there would be a public outcry against the uh, behavior of the police of officers. Of Meisen. Yeah, of Meisen in particular. And I mean, we'd already had Robert Paul attacking the police in general, and Meisen in particular. Um, if it turned out that Meisen, in fact, hadn't been going to go, to go down there and was just going to carry on on his beat, how does that look, Jonathan? It just looks terrible. Um, we can't prove it one way or the other. And in the book, I give five different scenarios for what could have happened. Um, on this scam. Now, admittedly, I go greatly with one of them and just give the other four in passing. But I finish off by saying it depends what you believe yourself, what you want to believe. Look at the evidence and come to the conclusion you want to come to. All right. Well, moving along, um, the podcast gets messages to this day from listeners who support Charles Lechmere as their suspect in the Ripper murders. Entirely based on their viewing of the 2014 documentary, The Missing Evidence, which you referred to earlier. Um, <laughs> and you devote a chapter in your book critiquing the documentary and warn that these types of programs, and I would even extend this warning to include books like Hallie Rubin Holds the Five. Mm. But you, you say um, the presentation values comes with a hidden message that it, opinions do not have to be guided by the facts uh, blatantly misrepresenting the evidence on the case in an attempt to fit up a suspect or I would say any theory is counterproductive is what you say in your book yes and you say that this documentary leaves behind a trail of debris and error would you care to enlighten our listeners Certainly. on a few of those Certainly. errors and, and how, well, how they're intended to fit cross up as a strong suspect Okay. Well, I'll start by saying it's a, it's a really well-made made documentary. The graphics are really good. It's well-presented. It's well-put together. They use three um, independent experts. Um, but it's misleading in so many parts. I mean, there's some verbal things, first of all, where a minor part, but they say the road layout hasn't changed. It's changed remarkably since 1888. The route which um, Lechmere probably took from his home down to Bucks Row no longer exists. It's just not there. And then they say that um, for Lechmere to have been walking only 20 or 30 
um, yards in in front of Paul, they'd have to have seen everyone, each other the whole time. That's just not true. And I, I have a whole chapter in the book pointing out the differences of walking speeds and just proving that they could easily have been 30 yards apart the whole time. But going on to the real misrepresentations, it's a television program, it's a visual media, and it presents things visually that are false. We start off with having Lechmere crouching over the body as Robert Paul approaches him. That's nowhere in any evidence at all, and yet people believe it. We see it on Facebook, we see it on Casebook all the time, and on JTR forums. People say, I've seen this, he was crouching over the body when Robert Paul saw him. It's not true. They also... The documentary is very nice in that it has Robert Paul enter on the north side of Bucks Row, then cross onto the south side for some reason to walk along and encounter the crouching uh, Lechmere before they cross over again. Again, it's not true. They show truncated police beats. I understand why, because they're trying to push their theory and that it's heavily heavy police presence at night. So they show three very short police routes going around all the time, not pointing out that there's a 30 minute gap between all of them and that only one actually goes down the road itself. There's a great big thing put forward about that there's a nine minute gap between the time that Lechmere arrives on site and the time Robert Paul arrives on site. This is based entirely on Robert Paul's I arrive in um, Bucks Row at exactly 3.45. There's no discussion about the fact that his 3.45 is contrary to the evidence of Fane, of Neil and of Meisen. Uh, no discussion that at all. It's just taken as if there's no debate over this at all. There is no gap as far as I'm concerned. Um, if, well, I say there's no gap. There's no gap if Lechby left home at the time he said he left home. And, and it, it doesn't take into account that Paul was never asked when, when he first saw Cross. No, he's never asked at all. On his entire walk to work up and, you know, he, so we, so the distance between the two of them, is entirely based on Cross slash Lechmere's yeah. um, account. Um, when it, obviously, if you're walking behind someone, then you're able to see the person in front of you, and the person in front of you would have no idea that you're there. Yeah, and of course, it depends on if it depends on if the person behind walking as well is actually taking any notice of what they're doing. This is a regular route they do to work every day. Uh, they may be in their own little bubble, in fact, not even taking any notice of what's going on around them at any distance, only when it gets up fairly close at 30 to 40 yards. Um, another point, they, another problem with the documentary is they, they give this argument that there are no easy escape routes. It's just not true. There's something like 20 possible escape routes. Uh, from the murder site. And to say there's no easy escape is just nonsense. Um, the killer, whoever he was, if he heard someone coming down Bucks Row from the east, to just get up, walk towards the board school, which is only 30 yards away, turn south, down Court Street, across Woods Buildings, down Thomas Street, and be out of sight before the person behind has even got to the body. There are plenty of escape routes. There's escape routes north. There's escape routes west, even, if you really want to make them out there. There's escape routes everywhere, and yet they say there's no easy escape routes. It's just full of these sort of tricks, shall we say, all the time. There's little tricks, implying stuff. I understand why they're doing it. It's And what most people don't understand is, is that this documentary is a television entertainment program. It's not meant to be 
a academic historical program. It's entertainment and they do this to make their point because they are trying to sell their program. But the, the use of experts um, in, in analyzing what is provided to uh, only um, the, the information that's provided to them by the Lechmere theorists, mm. you know, also creates this, this fantasy uh, of expert opinion being given based, based on bias, um, in a, a bias interpretation of the evidence given to them by the theorists. Yes. So, and like you said, I mean, it happens in a lot of documentaries. Yes, um, it happens all the time in every single documentary. Um, mm-hmm. I like so what, the what, make, what makes the Lechmere, uh, why is, why is, um, then <clears throat> the Cross Lechmere, um, documentary more egregious than a Tumblety documentary done, done, you know, several years ago or any other, you know, the Kosminski documentary or anything else? I'm not saying it's is any it, worse it than the, the others. It's standard for the thing. This one is done very well, though, and it's very convincing. I think that may that may be the real issue, that it is very convincing, and people who don't know the subject are going to take it as being factual. What I find reprehensible is the the cheating, the showing Lechmere kneeling over the body as Paul arrives. The, you know, the fact that you have Paul trying to run away almost across the road from him, which is, isn't what happened at all. Um... It's those sort of things. I just find them reprehensible and completely wrong, Jonathan. Um, they could have made their, their program a lot better factually. They didn't want to. They're trying to, trying to sell a program. And so in, in your broader um, uh, point that you make in your book is that documentaries like these and, and um, portraying the evidence in such a way is counterproductive to a healthy study of of this murder case right because it 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 muddies the waters right it does i mean a very good example if you recall last year when you had you had a oh dear boss with john malcolm on i think and at the time you were discussing um, Lechmere against Kos- Kos- Kosminski and a poll over on Richard Jones's website in which um, Lechmere was only a couple of percentage points behind Kosminski. And this was mainly, I believe, because the Kosminski program, uh, the Lechmere program is being shown very often, repeated quite often. If you look at the same poll now, he's sort of like nine points behind now. He's in about eighth place, Lechmere. It's a long way further down, maybe seventh place. It's a long way further down on the poll because the program hasn't been shown. People get interested in what they see. And And is Kosminski Kosminski still uh, at number one? uh, Convincingly at number one. (laughs) And then we just had a a documentary on Kosminski. Was that the BBC one? Yeah, with uh, David Wilson, I think. It's, it's, It's appalling. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's not very good. Yeah, I didn't, it's I not didn't very watch good. it. No, it's not very good. And I say that, you know, I mean, I'm a diehard Kos- Kosminski. I actually call myself an Antonite rather than Kosminski. I'm not 100% convinced it's Aaron Kosminski, but I'm 100% convinced that it's Anderson's Polish suspect. Yeah. Well, in, in your book, um, moving on from the whole Lechmere thing, w- when reading about the murder case in Bucks Row, 
as I mentioned earlier, using all these incomplete reports, you're also faced with uh, an unfortunate cast of characters who all seem to be trying to hide something, like we had mentioned with the police. Yes. Um, and, and this extends out to Thane, um, and not only Meisen, but Thane, and then the three slaughtermen at Harrison Barber's, who were questioned about the murders and were, in fact, early su- suspects uh, by the yes, press, they were the, at least. Of that, the they were the first suspects. They mm-hmm. were the very first suspects. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, with uh, the, the police and the horse slaughters, they all offer what can be read as incomplete accounts of what they saw and heard. Um, mm. Can you talk us through the about the slaughtermen and, and you in particular um, single out Tompkins, uh, but how their stories produce more questions than answers? Okay. Well, first of all, we have a situation where there's three guys working that night. Uh, Mumford, who's the most senior there, guy called Britton or Britton, depending on various spellings of his name, and Henry Tompkins, who's one of three brothers, all of whom are working for Harrison Barber. They've got Tompkins has got a history in the slaughter business. His father worked for the predecessor of Harrison Barber and was imprisoned for stealing meat. The family then moved up to Manchester and came back down probably in early 88 or possibly late 87. Tompkins' father is actually found dead outside the slaughterhouse in Winthrop Street. Uh, And Tompkins attends the inquest. And guess who the coroner is? None other than Wynne Baxter, who makes some quite derogatory remarks about the deceased Tompkins. When we then come forward to the murder itself, it's surprising that Tompkins, who is the newest member of staff, is the one who is called to the inquest. Now, we don't know if the police decide to pick him or they just picked out one guy, the three guys themselves, or whether he just volunteered. We've got no idea. But what he does, he he plays games with Baxter the whole time. Now, there's various reasons why he might be playing games. And I go into all of them in the book. Um, one of the, I mean... One of it could be simply that he's trying to get his own back for the comments that Baxter made about his father. But he plays games. Baxter has to really squeeze the information out of him all the time. Um, when he's asked if girls come to the slaughterhouse, he, he goes around the houses saying, I don't like the girls. And then it's finally he admits, yes, they do come to the slaughterhouse. Um, I go there slightly further on talking about the slaughterhouse. But he also says that he can't read when he's asked... Um, had he read an account about men being there when he, at, at the murder site, men being there, he knows nothing about it, he can't read. He's playing games the whole time. Also, he they say that the only man they saw that night, the only police officer they saw that night, was Fane when he came to collect his cape. But if he's the only police officer they see, and they only see him on that occasion, how on earth does Fane's cape get there? They're covering up. Now, they could be covering up for many reasons. They may just be scamming their boss or working hours. Um, it's interesting that uh, the police, one of the police reports also says that, I think it's the one on the 20th of October, or it's, well, let's see if that one or the one on the 19th of September, which says that uh, Bucks Row is known to be frequented by prostitutes and their clients. Now, it's the only place we ever found that, seen it nowhere else at all, but it does make you wonder when they say that there's no girls, when they say there's girls coming to the yard and you get Mrs. Green 
from you cottage saying there's no bad girls around here when she's questioned about possible brothels in Thomas Street. I know nothing about them. It does make you wonder if the whole area is being used for prostitution and that the yard itself may be involved in the prostitution racket. It could be, I say only could be, that that's part of a scam they're running and they don't want anyone to find out about it. You, I don't know that you suggest this, but it's suspicious enough um, regarding Thane's cape. You know, someone uh, dropped, it, whether it was Thane himself or... or or um, it's Neil. It has to be or, Neil. Or Neil Neil's, the only police, Neil's the only police officer who goes past the slaughterhouse. So someone, so some, for somehow Thane's cape is left at the slaughterhouse, and yes. then and then the murder occurs, and then um, my um, sorry, and then Neil um, asks Thane to go get Doctor Llewellyn, but yes. Thane first most likely goes to retrieve his cape from the slaughterhouse. Um, I would say most certainly, but we can't prove it. Right. And, and then then you get this, like you said, this um, uh, Bucks Row itself and, and the surrounding area having a bad reputation of, yes. of, of being um, a area where prostitutes operate. And then we have Polly Nichols with a, a missing hour um, in mm. her life. You know, um, so where was Polly between 2.30, I believe it was 2.30 a.m. when she was last sighted mm. and, and roughly, you know, three, uh, she wasn't there at three, she wasn't, her body wasn't in Bucks Road at three o'clock because we know no. um, Thane, both Thane and Kirby um, walked down. So but it wasn't there at 3.15. I would suggest that the body is there sometime between 3.25 and 3.35. That would right. be my best guess. Uh, and... I know this is getting into the realm of the <laughs> uh, speculation, spec, yeah. uh, massive speculation. But um, when the slaughtermen, I mean, okay, you know, suggesting that maybe Polly was actually at um, the Harrison Barber's yard on Winthrop Street before her murder. Um, we we do have uh, vi- differing reports of uh, the slaughtermen going to the murder site to see the body. Yes, who, uh, did, did you know? Th- in in one account, Thane actually waits for the slaughtermen to get ready, and they all go together. Yes. Thane denies this. The slaughtermen were there when he arrives back from retrieving Doctor Llewellyn. Three of them go all together, or maybe just two of them go, and one stays behind, yeah. and then it's and which, then which one two, of which one of the two, two stay behind, who, who right? Yeah. So there's there so there there's no one is one is able to get the same story straight. No. And PC Neil himself actually says at one stage um, they're the first members of the public who ter- who to turn up the slaughtermen, but then he says, um, apart from the guys we'd knocked up, then you have Perkis saying that he looks out of his window or from his door, he may have come down by that stage, it's not 100% clear, and apart from the police, there's two or three workmen there who he doesn't know. Uh, None of it makes any sense. Someone's not telling the truth about something. I don't know what they're not telling the truth about, and I don't want to guess. It's even possible on a stretch that, in fact, they might be involved with the murder. Uh, there's no evidence to suggest it, but you can never rule anything out. Or, or at the very least, they could have possibly been the last people to see her alive. 
Yes. And, and, and they didn't um, want to come forward with that information. Yes. I mean, the fact that it's actually uh, painted on their gates that the murder took place here. Right. And then the Echo goes and interviews Mumford um, ostensibly to get his side of the story and give a fair account. But actually, they're trying to find out what was going on because the same paper on the same edition and printed that um, it's believed that there was more than one person involved in the murder and they expect one of the people who, who wasn't directly involved to turn evidence on the others. It's quite obvious they're trying to fish there. The papers obviously believe that slaughtermen were involved. And fortunately, um, they appear to be checked out because Swanson says they were all interviewed individually and their story is all checked out. Uh, perhaps there is more information there than, than we have. Simple as that. Something's really off there. And it's in like, um, the whole, the whole situation about when they arrive at Bucks Row, the slaughtermen, um, and then Kirby arrives and, and, you know, the amount, here we get back to the whole, everyone, um, both the police and the, and the slaughtermen, it, it just becomes a mess. And like you had said, you know, Aberlene, um, was pulled in to oversee the investigation for a reason. Yes. Um, and it was, it was, it could have been directly related to this mess that, that occurred in Bucks Row because you have all these members of the public suddenly tramping around on the murder scene. The body was removed, um, uh, without following, um, the, procedure. um, the, yeah, right, the correct procedure. You have uh, the highest-ranking police officer at the scene, Kirby, um, not doing his job by keeping um, the members of the public back um, and allowing the body to be removed. Yes. Um, and no, no one knows who's there. Like you said, I mean, the three slaughtermen say that there are two workers there when before they first arrived, and then Perkins yep. said he saw two people. Were those the two slaughtermen or not? Yep. It just doesn't ever all work out. Yep. And and um, and then um, the guy um, I forget his name, um, Molshaw or whatever. Molshaw, yes, who Molshaw, was, who's sleeping most of the time. I'm afraid I, that's the conclusion I've come to. He's sleeping most of the time. He's in a boring job. Um, he's asleep most of the time. He says he doesn't see the see the police that often, but then he admits he sleeps a lot of the time. So um, he gets his he's time. On, he's on Winthrop Street, right? Yes, round the corner. Some, someone walks by and says, "Hey, there's been a murder down the street." And yes, then, we don't and know then this continues on its way. And, and then, and Molshaw like, Oh, let's go check it out. Well, who is that? That said that there was a murder down the street. You know, yeah. most people assume that it's whichever of the slaughtermen had remained at the, if any remained at the slaughterhouse. But you also have this mysterious stranger who is reported as passing down Buckrow while the police are there, who no one stops, who no one questions. It could be him. Right. Uh, there's no questions asked about who this person is. Um, Baxter actually says, if you may, as you manage to trace him, and all the response he gets is no. And Baxter is obviously frustrated as hell, uh, particularly with the police over the mortuary as well. The, I mean, the mortuary, as far as I'm concerned, is a real debacle of the police there. Right. Uh, go into uh, to that uh, uh, briefly, if you would. Um, because that doesn't that um, the the mortuary scene also um, rise uh, a couple other uh, suspects. 
Um, isn't that it what does. a Trevor Marriott's deal? Um, the, uh, um, Trevor believes that all the organs removed at the mortuary. You then get Mitro believing that Robert Mann is the man. That's right, not Marriott's yeah. uh, suspect, yeah. but um, believes he, that, he's getting, that, that, he, that he's getting, that he's um, the murderer. Um, what we have is that it's the whole question is when is the body undressed? The police originally say it's not undressed. It's not undressed until. Helson arrives. But there's also reports from the same time which say it is undressed. And some say it's partially undressed to allow Llewellyn to do his second examination when he's called back when they've discovered the injuries. It's all very confusing. Um, I go into it in great detail in, in the book. But it's real confusion. Now, Helson appears to come in and say, look, when I arrived there around nine o'clock, the body was still dressed. I saw it undressed. End of debate. But then a few days later, Spratlin gets up in court and changes his story. And whereas before he said, I didn't give them instructions to undress the body, he now suddenly says, I gave them explicit instructions not to undress it. Um, if Helson's telling the truth, why does he need to say this? There's no need to go back in and change his story. I think the body was undressed. And we see it happening again a week later when the Chapman case, when Phillips arrives there and says, when he gets to the mortuary, the body's already been undressed and washed. Yeah. I think the police have got no control over what's going on at the mortuary. And like I said, that might have been um, the, the main reason why Aberlene was pulled in. Um, because after the Bucks Row murder, you get do get a, you do see a tighter um, ship being ran um, un, under Aberline's direction. You do. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm the guy, I mean, I don't want to blame Sproutling and Helson. They were completely at their depth. They didn't have the experience of dealing with this sort of crime. This was the first one of what was going to turn out to be the biggest crime in their lives, in their careers. And they just didn't know how to cope with it. It wasn't their fault. Right. They just didn't have the experience to cope with it, Jonathan. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to remind our listeners, uh, we're going to be wrapping it up here, Steve, that all of this... It, it, you, you've put in a massive, massive amount of work. All of these topics, the police beats, the timings from, um, of Cross and Paul leaving their house, yes. the, um, all of the different police beats, the possible getaway routes, um, the police investigation, the slaughterhouse attendants and the Meisen scam, the missing evidence documentary. All of this yes. is covered in your book. Now remind our listeners how they can purchase your book. The adverts, there are adverts on Facebook and on Casebook and on JTR forums. Each advert has a link to PayPal. You just click on the PayPal link, takes you through to a site, PayPal site, where you can either pay $6.99 for the smaller version or $7.99 for the larger resolution. I would suggest you only buy the larger resolution if you're going to be looking at on a 36-inch screen. If you pay $7.99, you get the smaller version as well. You make the payment. I send you the files by email. They come as a PDF. Um, I'm considering possibly at some stage in the future having a print edition, but I'm not certain yet. And um, I'll be providing the PayPal link, the direct link in the show notes uh, for the podcast. So if you're listening to this on a mobile device, you can pull up the show notes and uh, there will be a direct link uh, to the PayPal address where you can purchase the book from Steve. 
So, and again, um, Steve, it was a, an enjoyable read, and I look forward to a print edition. I don't know how how much of the how, you know you'll have to get rid of. Obviously, it won't include hyperlinks to message boards, but you could probably include some maps in there and yeah. and uh, compiling all the press reports, like I said earlier, and and in all of the press reports on the Nichols murder in, in one spot, along with your uh, examination of the case is really, really well done. So, um, Thank you very much, Jonathan. Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's taken the best part of three years to do. I expect parts two and three to take considerably less time. Uh, I, expect, I expect to be done in about two years with both parts two and three. I'm doing both at the same time, concurrently, side by side, basically. Um, so I'll, I'll spend a couple of days on one and a couple of days on, on the other one because I found doing Bucks Row for three years you think about knowing else unfortunately right. you get completely drowned in it oh I imagine so okay well again um, good luck with the book and thanks for coming on the show today thank you very much it's been my pleasure right. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you'll find over 160 roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference presentations, Whitechapel Society meetings, and archive tapes, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast.